Well, in chapter 5 and in verse 31, Jesus speaks these words. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is His footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. One Thanksgiving Eve, a woman went to the grocery store to purchase a turkey that she would serve the next day. Well, being the night before Thanksgiving, the butcher was down to his very last turkey. He plopped the bird up on the scales, read the scales, it weighed 15 pounds. The lady said, I'll need more meat than that. Do you have a 19-pound turkey? Well, he didn't. I mean, that was his very last turkey. And so he took the bird off the scales, he placed the turkey back in the cooler, and then he pulled it out again, pretending it to be a different turkey. He put it up on the scales, this time he weighed it, and as he did, he pressed down on the scales with his two little fingers. So that, guess what? It weighed 19 pounds. Look at that. Just what you needed. Well, the indecisive lady, she sort of scratched her head and she says, Oh, I'm not sure what I need. Just wrap them both up for me, would you? <laughs> well, our lies have a way of finding us out, don't they? Over 200 years ago, the Scottish poet wrote, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. You see, the problem with lying are the 15 succeeding lies you have to tell to cover up the original one. And even then, the truth still has a way of wiggling its way out. Well, here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the value of our word. When we make a promise or when we take a vow... Do we follow through? Do we have integrity? How trustworthy are you? How reliable is your word? You know, there was a day in American life when your word was your bond. Business transactions were conducted on a handshake. Folks went out of their way to deliver on what they had promised. But those days are long gone. Today, agreements are made to be broken, it seems. Coaches and business executives, they sign long-term contracts knowing full well they'll last only until a better offer comes along. Players under contract sit out until their team renegotiates a larger salary or trades them to someone else. Politicians and journalists, they massage the facts, not to give us an accurate picture, but to advance the narrative that serves their purpose. People are concerned with truth only as long as it helps push along their particular agenda. Daniel Webster wrote, 
There is nothing as powerful as truth, and often nothing as strange. I mean, honest people are becoming extinct. They are a vanishing breed. Not too long ago, I found some disturbing statistics in an article I read in Psychology Today magazine. The article said this, 50% of people polled said that if audited by the IRS, they would owe money. 33% admitted to deceiving a friend. 26% would pocket the difference if a clerk gave them too much change. 19% cut in line at grocery stores. 93% violate the speed limit. 89% said scratching the paint on the car next to yours in the parking lot and driving away without leaving a note was dishonest. Yet 52% said that's exactly what they would do. 68% of people said that cheating on your spouse was wrong, yet 42% said they'd do it if the right opportunity presented itself. It reminds me of the man who was backing out of his parking spot. He had been in the mall. He'd been Christmas shopping. And as he was backing out, he smacked the car behind him. A large crowd had heard the crash. Many, many people saw the accident. It was a crowded mall. Well, the man got out of his car. He surveyed the damage. And then he stuck a note on the windshield. All the eyewitnesses were impressed. This, look at that. That's an honest man. Well, a couple hours later, the owner of the car that was hit, came out of the mall. He saw the damage. He went to investigate the note. And this is what it read. I just smashed your car. The people who saw the accident are watching me. They think I'm leaving you my name and address. I am not. Good luck. Welcome to our modern world. Truth has taken a hiatus. Today, deception, half-truths, Exaggeration, flattery rule the day. Say whatever you need to say to get whatever you say you need. That's how most people roll. And yet this is not how a Christian should navigate life. Jesus has a better way for us to live. He has a better way for us to relate to each other. He lays it out for us here in the Sermon on the Mount. Trustworthy, honest, Truthful, dependable, upright. These are all terms that should characterize a follower of Jesus. Once there was a woman, she was enjoying a day at the beach. She had found a spot. She had stretched out her towel. She was laying there on the beach when all of a sudden a boy, maybe eight years old, approached her. He asked, ma'am, are you a Christian? The lady said, well, yes. He asked again, do you go to church? She says, as a matter of fact, I do. I try to go every Sunday. Well, the little boy asked a third time. He said, do you read your Bible and pray every day? Well, now she's wondering, why these spiritual questions? I mean, especially uh, from an eight-year-old boy. Well, finally, the little boy revealed his thinking. He asked her, he said, ma'am, will you hold my money while I go swimming? <laughs> well, the little boy had the right assumption, didn't he? The one trait that should characterize every Christian is honesty. We should be known as people who value our word. A Christian should say what he means and mean what he says. He or she should have a reputation for honesty and integrity. Remember Proverbs 22 verse 1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches.
Once the pastor told his congregation that he was assigning them some homework. He wanted them all to go home, and during the following week, he wanted them to read John chapter 22. Well, when the next Sunday rolled around, the pastor asked for a show of hands. How many of the good church members had read John chapter 22? Well, about three quarters of the crowd, they raised their hand. How embarrassed they were when the pastor informed them that John's gospel ends with chapter 21. They were all lying in the confines of the church. And I wonder about us. How many times have we lied? Have we been dishonest in church? We refuse to come clean about ourselves and admit the truth. Or maybe we make empty promises to God or to each other. Perhaps we ignore the truth that we claim to seek. You see, this was the issue with the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Judaism also put a premium on truthfulness. In Proverbs chapter 6, King Solomon had listed six things that the Lord hates. And near the top of his list is a lying tongue. The Pharisees claimed to value honesty and integrity. Yet, as usual, they said one thing and did another. They made great promises while looking for loopholes. Jesus addresses these Pharisees here in verse 33. He says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Under the Old Testament, oaths were a device that promoted honesty. When you took an oath or swore by a third party, you were asking a higher power to hold you accountable, to judge you if you failed to keep your vow or hold up your end of the deal. This reinforced your commitment to the promise. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 16 explains it this way, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. It's like us swearing on a stack of Bibles. The consequences, whatever they are, of mocking a stack of Bibles should hold you to keep your word. Hebrews 6 mentioned that God Himself had taken an oath. Of course, God had no one or nothing greater than Himself that He could swear by, but God wanted Abraham to know how strongly he was committed to the promise he was making to his people, and so he swore by himself, the Scripture tells us. Again, this system of third-party oaths was intended to bolster our respect and commitment for the truth. But as usual, the Pharisees, they twisted the intent or the spirit behind God's law, and they interpreted it in a way that God never intended. You see, the Pharisees made their oaths not to buttress the truth, but to undermine it. They would sucker another party into an agreement with an oath, knowing full well that later on they would use a religious-sounding excuse to nullify their obligation. It was like taking an oath with your fingers crossed behind your back. Rather than promote honesty in God's family, their oaths were a way of bamboozling the brethren. You see, the Pharisees had invented a whole classification system of oaths. Certain oaths were more binding than others. It depended on the stature of the third party you invoked. Notice here in verse 34, Jesus describes their scale in cascading clout. He says, neither by heaven... 
for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is His footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. In other words, for big promises, they swore by heaven. Oh, that's God's throne. A person's less likely to violate heaven. For lesser but still important promises, they would swear by the earth. It's not God's throne, but hey, it's still His footstool. For run-of-the-mill promises, they would just invoke Jerusalem. And for flippant promises, oh, just swear by the hairs on your head. But again, the intent of all this oath-making was really getting out of the promise, not upholding it. This is why Jesus loathed their oaths. He hated them. Jesus says in verse 37, Rather than take an oath, let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Rather than rely on oaths to form agreements, people should trust us because they know we're true to our word and we keep our promises. We do what we say we'll do. People should know that our yes is yes and that our no is no. That we don't welch on a promise that becomes inconvenient. You see, the Jews relied on sneakiness of speech to coax men into trusting them. How much better for men to know your character, to take you at your word and rely on your integrity. Once there was a businessman, he approached his lawyer. He wanted him to draw up an airtight contract that would protect him from this new partner that he didn't really trust. Well, the smart lawyer, he said, No words in the English language will take the place of honesty between men. Nothing will protect either of you if you plan to deceive each other. And it's true. Nothing replaces integrity and character. Notice here in verse 34 when Jesus tells us, But I say to you, do not swear at all. Realize He's not forbidding every formal oath that society might require us to take. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, we'll find that the Apostle Paul took an oath. In Acts 21, Paul actually participated in a, a vow, a bigger oath. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 63, even Jesus Himself swore under oath to be the Messiah. See, I don't believe that a newly appointed president taking his oath of office or a soldier's vow to serve his country or a marital vow or the oath you might take to testify in court is a violation here of verse 34. Some Christians do. Quakers, for example, they prohibit their members from swearing any kind of formal oath. I don't believe that Jesus is forbidding here for participation in legalities or formalities. In fact, symbolic gestures are important to a culture. For example, when a man and a woman publicly exchange their marriage vows, it isn't just a statement to each other. It's, it's making a statement to the society at large. It's saying something about marriage and about God's intent for husbands and wives. If my wife hadn't been willing to walk the aisle and take an oath, I might have questioned her seriousness. But I don't trust her today just because she mouthed some words to me in an altar many, many years ago. No, I trust her today because I know her to be a woman of character and a woman of integrity. I trust what she says. 
And Jesus is teaching us here that mere words should never become a substitute for honesty and nobility. That people should trust us to say what we mean and mean what we say. I've heard it said, It's surprising what heights a man may obtain by simply remaining on the level. As the old saying goes, honesty is the best policy. Dr. Madison Sturat taught mathematics at Vanderbilt University. Before each test, he would say to his class, Today I am giving two exams, one in trigonometry and the other in honesty. I hope you will pass them both. But if you must fail one, fail trigonometry. There are many good people in the world who can't pass trig, but there are no good people in the world who cannot pass the examination of honesty. And here's where we get tested. How committed are we to honesty and to integrity? How do we behave when nobody but God is watching us? Are we honest to God? It was years ago now, but I'll never forget. We went to the Cracker Barrel for dinner one night. Natalie was just a tot, but she still had strength enough to swing that door open. And when she swung that car door open to get out of the car, she swung it as hard as she could. And bam! The edge of that car dug right into the quarter panel of the car next to us. I mean, it left a gash. It wasn't just a dent. It was a gash. We walked inside, we ordered our dinner, and for the next hour, I was tormented. Should I search for the owner? Should I leave a note? Should I just pretend that it didn't happen? I mean, it was just a dent. No, it was a gash. I was so upset, not even Cracker Barrel tasted good that night. Well, when it was time to leave, I took a piece of paper, wrote out my contact information, and I stuck it on the car's windshield. I guess I should tell you that I wrote the note in Hebrew, but no. No, not really. No, I wrote the note in English. And I wish I could report that God blessed me. And the owner of the car said, Oh, thanks for your honesty. No big deal. Let's just pretend it didn't happen. But that's not what the owner said. The lady filed a claim. My insurance went up. It cost me to be honest. You know, it's one thing for us to say that we want to be a person of integrity. But is it still our desire when it costs us something? When it costs us some money? When it costs us some big bucks? Truthfulness can actually get expensive. Do we really believe Proverbs 28, verse 6? Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one perverse in his ways, though he be rich. Hey, not all of us will become great missionaries or evangelists, but we all can be a witness for Jesus by being a person of integrity. And for a husband and a wife, guess where that integrity needs to start? In your marriage, with the vow that you have taken toward your spouse. The music of marriage should be played in high fidelity, in perfect purity, and in clarity. Jesus says in verse 31, Furthermore, it has been said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, 
that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now, as the Jewish system of oaths allowed you a way out of your obligation, so did its teaching on divorce. You see, the law of Moses had allowed for divorce on the grounds of uncleanness. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4 had stated, When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and then divorces her, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife. Now understand, God's law in Deuteronomy, it did three things. First, it turned divorce into a legal proceeding. You see, prior to Deuteronomy 24, all a husband had to do was just send his wife packing. He didn't even owe her bus fare. But now a certificate is involved. There's a legal proceeding that has to be engaged. Second, this law, it established a cooling off period. I mean, the certificate slowed the man down. It made him think it through. No knee-jerk reactions now. The man was forced to think through the implications of his decision in order to go and to get that certificate. And then third, once you divorced your wife, you could never, ever remarry her. That means that if it dawned on you later that the divorce was a mistake, you couldn't rectify it. You had to live with its finality. This, too, caused you to think through the issues. You see, all three aspects of God's law were intended to discourage, not encourage, divorce. God wanted to make divorce more difficult, not easier. Deuteronomy 24 wasn't meant to condone divorce, but to postpone divorce. To prevent it, not permit it. To erase it, not excuse it. It's interesting, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus was asked to explain this law in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And there Jesus explains it. Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. The law of Moses made a concession to human hard-heartedness. God knew that because of man's sin, that his heart would get hard. That it would get hard toward the person that he loved the most. And so rather than face a rash of murders and domestic violence, God allowed for divorce. It reminds me of the man who was asked, when did you discover a certain chemistry in your marriage? He answered, well, when I found arsenic in my cornflakes. Did you hear the man? He was driving along a, a deserted freeway when all of a sudden a cop stopped him. He informed the driver that his wife had fallen out of the car about a mile or so back up the road. The driver said, Officer, thanks for letting me know. I thought for a minute there I'd gone deaf. You'll get it later. Let me just say, 
in 34 years, I've done enough marriage counseling to know that both husbands and wives can suffer from acute hardening of the heart. It is amazing how we can get stone cold toward the person that we once loved so passionately. And once again, the Pharisees failed to interpret correctly the intent behind God's law. You see, they focused on the letter of the law and ignored the spirit behind the law. Deuteronomy 24 was God's attempt to keep people married. Instead, they interpreted it as an excuse to get divorced. They focused on this term, uncleanness, where Deuteronomy reads, because he has found some uncleanness in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce. There was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. His name was Hallel. Rabbi Hallel interpreted an uncleanness as just about anything. In fact, I'll quote him for you. If a wife spoiled her husband's dinner by putting too much salt on his food, if she was seen in public with her head uncovered, if she talked with other men on the street, if she spoke disrespectfully of her husband's parents, oh my, if she became plain looking compared to another woman and her husband found someone he considered to be more attractive. Again, it's amazing how times have changed and yet people remain the same. Trust me, the excuses offered by Rabbi Hillel are no better than some that I've heard from couples just recently. I mean, like the wife who gave birth to three sets of twins. You'd think her husband would be happy. Instead, he complained about her being overbearing. It is amazing how a girl or how a guy who was so incomparable can suddenly become incompatible. I like what the British pundit G.K. Chesterton once said about marital compatibility. He says, if Americans can be divorced for incompatibility, then I cannot conceive why they're not all divorced. I've known many happy marriages, but never a compatible one. The whole aim of marriage is to fight through and survive the incompatibility. For a man and woman as such are incompatible. The differences between you and your spouse are designed to complement, not bring you into conflict. You see, the problem comes when our hearts get hard. And they do, don't they? We stop trying to understand. We stop showing mercy. We stop forgiving. We stop adapting. We get stuck in our ways. We get rooted in a rut. It's time to interact in a fresh way. It's time to regain some creativity. For fruit to grow, you've got to weed and water the garden. And this is what produces good fruit in a marriage. What weeds have you plucked out from your part in the marriage? How have you watered your part, your heart in the marriage? <coughs> have you poured out water and refreshment on your spouse? It's been said, a wedding is an event, a marriage is an achievement. Don't be naive. No matter how much you start out loving your spouse, a good marriage is still hard work. Hey, you learn that love is more than emotion. Love is a policy. Feelings come and go, but love is a commitment. 
You've got to stick with it. Once a wife, she fell into a deep, dark depression. Her husband decided to take her to a psychiatrist. Well, after speaking to them both, the psychiatrist, he told the husband, he said, you know, the cure for your wife is very, very simple. He walked over to her. He gently put his arms around her. He gave her a warm embrace and then planted a passionate kiss right on her lips. Well, immediately, a smile rolled across this lady's face. I mean, she just seemed better. The psychiatrist, he turned to the husband. He said, now, that's all your wife needs to put her life back together. The husband, he sort of scratched his head for a few minutes, and he finally says, well, okay, doc. He said, I'll try to bring her in on Tuesdays and Thursdays. (laughs) Guys and gals, when you stop working at it, that's when wedlock becomes deadlock. Hearts get hard. Sylvester Stallone, he starred in five boxing movies. His character, Rocky Balboa, he fought some classic fights. uh, Stallone once made a comment, though, on boxing that I think applies to modern notions on marriage. Stallone said, Boxing is great exercise as long as you can yell cut whenever you want. And this is how people treat marriage today, isn't it? Rather than roll up their shirt sleeves, rather than get off the canvas when you get knocked down and work at it, rather than do the dirty work that every successful marriage requires, People today like to yell, cut, and take the easy way out. You see, the law of Moses countered that attitude. It slowed folks down. It made them think rather than yell, cut, and just walk away. Moses allowed divorce because of the hardness of our hearts. But here's some good news. Jesus is able to change hard hearts. He is. It's his specialty. Changing hearts is Jesus' specialty. Ezekiel 36 promises that Jesus will take out your heart of stone and he'll replace it with a heart of flesh, a jello heart, something soft. Jesus can soften hard hearts. Jesus can take a stone hard heart. He can soak it with grace. He can knead it with mercy. He can soften it up with sensitivity. He can inject it with love. He can turn a hard heart as soft as a baby's behind. And this gives Jesus the right to now raise the bar on marriage. Moses, he couldn't do anything about the heart's hardness. And so he had to let his followers get a divorce or they'd end up killing each other. But Jesus is able to change a hard heart. This is why he prohibits divorce. We no longer have to suffer from stony hearts. Notice what Jesus tells us in verse 32. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Understand Jesus and the rest of the New Testament takes divorce off the table for his followers, with two exceptions. In verse 32, we find one of these exceptions. It's sexual immorality. The Greek word here is pornea, from which we get our term 
pornography. This is a broad term. It included all types of sexual promiscuity. Adultery, incest, pedophilia, homosexuality, prostitution, etc., etc., etc. Here Jesus is saying that if your spouse engages in any type of sexual behavior outside the marriage covenant, then you are free to divorce him or her and to remarry. Now take note, divorce is not commanded. God has and can work the miracle of repairing the damage that marital infidelity causes. But reconciliation can be painful, and thus divorce is permitted. You see, in the Old Testament, if a person were guilty of adultery, they were taken to the town square. They were put knee-deep in a pit of mud, and then the townspeople stoned them to death. The adulterer was punished, and now the offended spouse was a widow or a widower and thus free to remarry. In contrast, Jesus shows mercy to the guilty. Remember what he said to the woman taken in adultery? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He shows mercy to the guilty, but at the same time, he avoids punishing the innocent, for he continues to give the innocent spouse the prerogative to exit the marriage if he or she so desires. For Jesus, it's mercy all around. There is one other biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about a spouse being abandoned because of their Christianity. Say your spouse is an unbeliever, and he or she no longer wants to remain married to a follower of Jesus. I mean, man, you don't party like you used to. You don't smoke pot and watch porn with me anymore and whatever else we used to do. And so that person, oh, he's no fun, she's no fun, and so they, they want to walk out of the marriage. So in the eyes of the unbelieving spouse, they decide to leave the marriage. Where does that leave you? Well, Paul says that in such a case, he has compassion on the believer. Think about it. He or she has been persecuted. They've been abandoned. All of this is not their fault. They've simply been seeking Jesus. It would then be cruel to force that believer to remain bound to a spouse who no longer wants to be married. And thus, Paul writes this. If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. The believing spouse can then move on and start over. So, here are the two biblical exceptions for divorce and remarriage. Sexual immorality and abandonment. Sexual immorality and abandonment. That means if he gets fat or if she grows crabby, or if somebody loses a job, or if the kids go nuts, or if she runs up the credit cards, or if he plays too much golf, or if he hurts your feelings, or if she neglects your needs. Oh, these are all problems that should be solved, but the answer is not divorce. Why? Because Jesus can change your heart. Pray about it. Talk about it. Work it through. Stick it out. Even get some help. Certainly show some patience and love that person a lot. But understand, you have no biblical basis to pursue a divorce. It's the book of Malachi that gives us a crystal clear glimpse 
into God's attitude on divorce. Everybody wants to know, well, what do you think about it? Well, what does God think about it? He's unequivocal. He tells us clearly. In Malachi 2, verse 15, the prophet writes, Take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. You see, divorce on an unbiblical grounds is evil for two reasons. First, it breaks God's heart. Realize, it damages the picture that God wants to paint and is painting in every marriage. You see, you and your spouse, you're a spiritual snapshot of Jesus and His church. Thus, divorce blurs the picture. I mean, how would you feel if someone broke into your house and ripped apart your wedding album, destroyed all your wedding pictures? This is how God feels about divorce. The second reason that God hates divorce is that it breaks the hearts of those who are forced to endure it. It damages the feuding adults and the kids that get drugged through it with them. Judith Wallerstein, a California psychologist, studied 60 divorced families over a 10-year period. She concluded, divorce has been a wrenching experience for every family I've ever seen. You know, I talked to kids whose parents waited until they had become adults before they got divorced. They thought that as adults, their kids wouldn't be as traumatized. Wow, were they wrong. Whenever parents split, it splits a kid's heart. You think divorce is a sniper's rifle, and the only person it'll affect is your spouse, the person in the sights at the other end of that rifle. That's not true. Divorce should be thought of more like a pipe bomb. Divorce is like a pipe bomb blast. The ramifications are widespread and far-reaching. Stuff you never intended to damage ends up destroyed when there's a divorce. Malachi considers divorce a violent crime. He writes, it covers one's garment with violence. Think of a blood-splattered shirt. Think brutal, vicious. Think of something messy. The Bible teaches that marriage makes us one flesh. When children are born, they become part of that union. Emotions, dreams, identities, destinies, all intertwine. You cannot now separate the appendages of the one without a lot of bleeding and tearing and hurting. And some hurts deep down inside. Billy Graham once wrote, Divorce is an easy escape, many think, but in counseling divorcees, I have discovered the guilt and loneliness they experience can be even more tragic than living with the problem. Think about it before you sign those papers. It might just be worth another try. Remember, you took a vow. You made a promise. You gave your word. There's a spouse who remembers the promise you made. There's a little boy, a little girl perhaps, who's still counting on you to keep your word to them. You said you'd never leave them, that you'd always be there for them. Now you're being tested. Pray. Please pray. You've tried everything else. Why don't you pray 
And let Jesus soften your heart and strengthen your resolve. Christians are people who are true to their word. Be a person of integrity. Most importantly, God's reputation, His glory hangs in the balance. Jesus takes seriously the words that we speak and the promises we make. We should take them seriously too. And if you've made a promise that you haven't kept, and you think it's too late to do anything about it now, you're wrong. You can be forgiven. And forgiveness matters. Forgiveness allows us to start over. Forgiveness gives us God's power to avoid the same mistakes again. Jesus makes all things new. If you need to be forgiven today, will you come to Jesus? He promises to blot out our sin and our failures if we ask Him to. He'll help us begin again. In fact, He'll make us people who are true to our word.